This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Pei, your TraumaCast moderator. Thank you very much for joining us. This is a particularly special TraumaCast to me because I'm actually speaking to you from Kampala, uh, Uganda, with my esteemed guest, Dr. Jackie Mubajano. Dr. Jackie is a consultant surgeon at the Molago Hospital, and I want to give Dr. Jackie an opportunity to introduce herself. Hello, everybody. I'm Jackie. People call me Dr. Jackie, so it's fine with that. I'm fine with that. I'm a consultant general surgeon at Mulago, which is a national referral hospital for Uganda, um, but with a bias to trauma. Great. It's, it's so good to have you. We've been here this past week, and we've been really privileged to do a trauma operative and resuscitation course. How do you think it went? I think it was it went wonderful. It was wonderful. It was a great opportunity for our postgraduates, or as the Americans call them, the residents, to to really have an experience with operative surgery, learning new techniques, relearning or hearing again what they've known or have been taught before, but really getting it, um, getting a practical sense of how to do some of these procedures, which many times we take for granted that everybody knows. So I think it went went very well. Right, and, and that's great to hear. And we clearly there's going to be some differences between the way that we train our residents. And I was wondering if you can share with our audience how your residents are trained to become eventually a consultant like yourself. Okay, the the university system is that now the the residents are it's a three year program for surgery, but in the near future it may become four years. Because it's there, there's realizing that it may not be enough time to get um, exposure to all the different disciplines sure. in general surgery. Right. So it may go to four years, but at the moment it's three years. The first year is for um, the basic sciences, so they do the anatomy, the physiology, the biochemistry, um, but all now to do particularly with surgery. So part of that is like for the anatomy, they do the dissection once more than the cadaveric dissections, but now geared to the surgical approaches and the surgical procedures they will be doing. Then second year and third year, they are in the wards, and then they do the rotations in general surgery and then some of the subspecialties. So it's about a three-year course. And, and the third year, they expected to do a research, a research program or research paper, um, which goes to... It takes up a certain percentage of their uh, final mark. I see. I see. Um, and it, it was a it was a real privilege to work with your residents um, today and this and throughout this week. Uh, clearly, we are um, in the U.S. increasingly more interested in giving our residents more autonomy because part of what's happening with U.S. training is that our residents are maybe over-supervised, and uh, we're afraid that we're graduating residents who have not had the enough autonomy. 
your side of the training seems like they have an awful lot of autonomy. Actually, maybe too much. <laughs> it may be on the negative side because I think the, they, you need to really be closely supervised until you gain the confidence that now I can do this procedure by myself. Right. So, and that is something which uh, at times is often lacking mm -hmm. because of uh, so many issues, including the number of uh, consultants or professors or associate professors we have and the way uh, the hospital is set up. So the calls may be a bit different from the calls in, um, in the States. So we think that they still need to be uh, really more, I, I, I myself prefer that they would be more closely supervised until you're really sure that, until one is really sure that now they can do this procedure, they can do this operation by themselves. And then it gives, it gives them even more confidence if they know that even if I'm not scrubbed in with them, yes. but I'm nearby, so yes. in case they do get stuck, I can come in and assist. Yes, and I, I think that's, a, that, that's the type of autonomy that we're also looking for for our residents is that they know that we're nearby but that they can always count on us um, if, if they get into trouble. Yeah. So let's talk some about your day-to-day -day life at the hospital. Could you describe, I, I know every day is probably very different and I, I've seen your ward and it's very, very busy. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for our audience what a normal um, day for you would be like at work? Okay, very unpredictable, that's for <laughs> sure. It's a very unpredictable day. Um, the way the hospital is set up, uh, it has what we call a casualty and this one deals with medical emergencies and surgical emergencies. So I... I'm stationed in the surgical emergency unit. Sure. Um, at the moment, because of what's the renovations which are going on, we don't. Uh, we have a trauma unit, but now because of this limited space, we don't have it as a separate unit. Right. But hopefully, when we are done with the renovations, we shall have our own trauma unit, and that's where we shall that's be great. stationed. Yeah. So now we admit both the trauma and the non-trauma surgical emergencies. Sure. So the casualty ward is very busy. Yes. It's the busiest part of the hospital. Uh, it's open 24 hours and patients come in from not only within Kampala but even referrals mm. from upcountry as sure. far as 200, 300 kilometers away. For instance, a lot of the femur fractures cannot be handled um, or those who are able to have them done operatively will be referred to Molago. Sure. Then we have, because of not having a proper ambulance or emergency, pre-hospital emergency medical system, Many of our patients are brought in either by family mm. or good Samaritans or by the police. Sure. So the police don't even have so many ambulances. They'll just come in with whatever vehicle they can get their hands on, whether it's a pickup truck or whether it's an ordinary uh, car, they will bring in these patients. So many of them have not had any pre-hospital um, management or treatment. So it's like you're starting from scratch. Mm. So some of these patients come in when they are really, really, really... Um, in a bad way. Yeah. yeah, and because you are because you are a tertiary referral center where the where all the other hospitals are referring to you, clearly you can't refer people elsewhere. No. So what do you do when you run out of beds or when you don't have any more resources to keep taking these patients in? That's the thing. We can't run out of beds, technically speaking. Right. So at times you find that we have to either go to another ward, mm. or at times you even find we have you've tried to squeeze in so many beds right. in the wards right. or at times even you find that you have to put patients on the floor on yeah. mattresses on the floor 
Yeah, so because we cannot send anybody away. Right. So you find that the, the wards which handle trauma patients, for instance, the orthopedic trauma ward, is really filled to capacity. And these are patients whom you can't send away. Many of them will take long because of the problems we have here. Yeah. Um, not enough nurse, nurses, so the nursing care at times, especially the post-operative nursing care, right. may be at times lacking, and then you end up with a lot of complications, yes. infection being one of them. So that makes the patient stay longer than you would want to stay. Yeah, so on a day-to-day -day basis, we get, uh, we must get um, more than at least 40 trauma patients a day. These are not like really all who require resuscitation. The ones who may require resuscitation may be not more than maybe five or six sure. or seven in a day. But just so our under audience understands, you're the only doctor who's taking care of all of these traumas that are coming in. Is that right? Or well, I'm like the okay, like I'm the surgeon who is there. Right. But since I can't be there 24 hours. When I'm not there, they may be either other surgeons or medical officers. Yeah, but then they should have backup because there's always a firm which is on call right. and they will have uh, surgeons, senior surgeons, associate professors, professors, senior consultants. Yeah, and in Uganda, although people are branching out to specialities in surgery, but when it comes now for emergencies, we still handle all emergencies. Trauma emergencies, non-trauma, whether you're a... Uh, uh, if you say you're an endocrine surgeon, but still when you do the general surgery calls, you have to handle such cases. Yes, and I, um, I've been in your unit, and I, what I'm realizing is that people are multi-talented. You have to know how to do a lot of things. This is what, in the U.S., we would call the old-school general surgeons, when they used to do literally everything. Yeah. So I know you also did some training in South Africa, right? Yes, I had the privilege of staying about one year at the uh, University of Witz, uh, Witzwater's Rand, right. which is attached to the Johannesburg, Johannesburg um, Charlotte, I can never pronounce that name, <laughs> something hospital, which is the hospital which for the university, the teaching hospital. Is the training that you got there very different than the type of training yes, that's happening it, in Morocco? it was very different. Actually, it was like, I got like a cultural shock, if you may say it that way. Because, yes, I was here, I was saying that I'm a consultant surgeon, but the trauma service was so specialized I see. and so different from what we're used to. And it, so I had to, like, I reached a point where I just said, okay, let me just start off like a medical officer and start from there. And I'll see how I can work my way up. But unfortunately, the time I had um, asked for elapsed, elapsed before I could actually start taking calls as a senior sure. trauma surgeon. But they see a lot of trauma a lot of trauma and it's a level one trauma center mm. so they get all the traumas from a, a big part of the hospital sure. a big, so part of the but country. so do you i mean you get all the trauma referrals yeah. too except that they probably had a lot more facilities facilities re ct scans yeah. mris yeah. which you don't have available here exactly. so my next question is what i realize is the the week that i spent here and the very little bit of time that i spent in your ward I felt paralyzed and not knowing what to do because I didn't have a CAT scanner. I didn't, I didn't know what to do next when these yeah. sick patients came in. Yeah. So what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles um, for you in, in your quest to take, patient, take good care of these patients? I think it's the resources. Yeah. The human resource and then just the, the resources, the material, supplies. Right. And then the resources like the investigative abilities. Right. I mean... In this day and age, we times reach a point where we have to do exploratory boreholes. 
which I think is unheard of in, in your setting. Right. Because this is a patient who may be brought in uh, unconscious. We're not sure the mechanism of injury, but he's unconscious. He has lateralizing signs. He has no one to take him to, the, to pay for the CT scan or right. attend the CT scanner is not working. So you're, you're forced to do just expiratory bore holes try to save this patient's life. At times you may not have facilities even to do an ultrasound scan, but if you clinically think this patient has got a hemoperitoneum, you're going and explore. You sure. can't afford to not explore because you're waiting for uh, I mean, the exploration. The or, exploration for you almost replaces our CAT scan. It does. Yeah, it does. because you yeah. can't wait around, and the and the families can't necessarily find the money to get to, the CAT scan. Right. Yes, so you yeah. just have to operate on them to, to operate, find out. To right? find out. And so then, as a result of that, do you have a lot of negative explorations where you don't find injury? Surprisingly, not. The negative laparotomies are not very common. Surprisingly, because um, because of the lack of diagnostic. Facilities like the CT scans or the ultrasound scans, we have kind of like honed our clinical skills. So with time, you get to know that really this is an abdomen. I should go in or I shouldn't go in. So rarely do we have the negative laparotomies because mm-hmm. you, you follow the clinical signs. If you have to monitor the patient for let's say one hour or two, you can tell if they're deteriorating. You can still go ahead and do that. And that's a, and that's a great point because when it's not available to you, you. Uh, hone in on your skills and you get better with your um, clinical examination skills where you can tell whether or not somebody might need a surgery. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's very fair. Especially when it comes to us, the general surgeons, you don't really need too, too much. Most of it you will find when you open the abdomen or when you go to do your surgery. Right. Because we don't have things like, for instance, if someone has a stab wound in the neck, we won't have... uh, facilities to do like the barium barium swallow and all those other fancy investigations so you just go in and invest and do your your explorative surgery so dr jackie you know we've talked about how many global health programs come in and out of this institution and sometimes i think it's worthwhile for us to ask you what can we do to be of the most help and to perhaps perpetuate things for better uh, patient outcomes. What are your thoughts on that? I could talk days or hours about this. (laughs) But one thing that I really think is um, that the partnership can really help with is identifying those particular areas where we really need help. Now, the, the, the problem with us is that we were like, both third world, and then in some areas you find it's like first world. I don't know whether you can understand what I'm trying to say. So much as we may have looking in, uh, when we're working in areas of um, deficiencies or we, we don't have things and we're like uh, substituting or having to improvise. At the same time, our students, for instance, our, our residents, even us, the surgeons, need to know what is happening in the first world. That some of the techniques, the new techniques, the new technologies that are coming out so it becomes like a tricky thing we may not need as much as you have in the first world but neither do we we can't stay in the third world so it's like a big trick we have to be somewhere in the middle we have to decide what is enough for us what is adequate we may not need 
CT scan for every patient who comes in the door because we, we may not be able to afford it, but we need a CT scan for those who need it. I don't know whether you. No, it makes it makes sense because is it? Um, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you're saying you want your trainees to know what's out there, yes. even if it's not immediately available, yes. because you want you want your health center to go towards that direction. Yes, so it's, it's like finding the middle ground. What is suitable for us, what we can use, and what we can sustain. We may not have, um, it may not necessarily be everything you have in the first world, but then more than what we have at the present time to help our patients, so that we have a better survivals, better outcomes, less mortalities is it is it frustrating for you that is it frustrating for you that we come in for two weeks and then we leave and then another group comes in for two weeks and then they leave and at the end of the day we all get to go back to our cat scanners and our mri machines and you are still with the resources that you have is that ever frustrating for you at times it does at times it can get frustrating but uh, what i've learned with time is that um to maximize on the visits, on these visits. So I know I, if I can find out what you can really offer, I try to maximize that so yeah. that the visit is not like just like a tourist yes, visit. Yes. But you, you do leave something behind yeah. for us, usually in terms of knowledge yeah. and skills, because you can always learn something new. You can always learn something new. Yes. Yeah. For instance, we have the, the ultrasound machine for the fast. Yeah. Not many of us are well equipped. And you may not even have the time to teach for us, for instance, our residents right. how to do it. But like if somebody like you comes in, then I will probably ask you, like the time you're here, if you can help the residents with the fast, so that's something which you're used to doing. And then that way, you will have left behind, will have like maximized, uh, taken advantage of you in some way <laughs> for your visit or your stay. Um, Dr. Jackie, I, um, I know that sometimes people from various U.S. hospitals, in fact, hospitals from all over the world, come to places like Malago Hospital, and they come in and they fly in for a few weeks and they operate on some patients, sometimes a lot of patients. And so these, these surgeons, they come in and they, um, they do a surgical camp and they bring supplies and they operate on however many patients they can operate on in two weeks. And then they, and then they leave. Uh, and then maybe another group comes in or six months later, that same group comes in. Is that, is that bothersome to you? Is that uh, annoying to you? Or is that helpful uh, to Malago? And, and the second part of that question is, is that the best way to do it? Is there a better way to do that? Um, okay, I think that surgical camps have their advantages and disadvantages. One advantage is that definitely it helps us clear the backlog of patients because we can never finish the patients. We're always like behind our diaries, our, our diaries or our bookings are always like six months, you're, you know, you're full up to like six months ahead. So when you get an opportunity to get like a surgical camp, it helps you to clear the backlog of patients. And you may at times reach those patients who would not necessarily or normally come to the hospital for these services. So that's one great advantage. And also the transfer of skills. The transfer of skills. You learn new ways of doing things. And it's both ways. Because the people who come to visit learn from us and we also learn from them. Yeah. So in that way, it's, it's, it's beneficial. 
but uh, if nothing is really, if it's just like for clearing numbers or for publicity's sake, and there it doesn't really help us. Yeah, and it's not just only the really numbers, but it's the quality of the surgery. Because we've seen some people when they, they have come in and they work on numbers, and the numbers are impressive. But when you look at the complication rate, it, it's, it's, it's horrendous. So you spend the next two, three months just trying to uh, correct the mistakes or deal with the, uh, the surgical complications that have arisen because it's like they do the last operation sure. today and they're in the morning and they're on the next flight out in the evening right. and at times if they've especially when they've done these um, camps where there are no resident surgeons or where the resident surgeons are not enough uh, or on the ground as much as we would want them to right. and the complication rate can be quite high and in that case it doesn't really become too much of an advantage mm. yeah but it's for the transfer of skills i think it's great it's does it um does it ever get confusing the number of institutions and number of organizations that come in and out of Malago hospital yes it does it does and nowadays we're getting more students medical students coming in nursing students coming in um because i think they I don't know why it suddenly become so popular for them to come in and spend, let's say, two weeks, three weeks. So they are different stages, uh, different levels of their education, and it can become a bit. At times, it becomes a bit too. Um, I don't know how to put it because, like, you're doing your own work, you're doing the daily work. You have your own students to teach, and then you also have these uh, visiting students or visiting um, residents or doctors. So at times, it can become a bit overwhelming especially when you're in the midst of, because um, like some people come in when they're, and then they say we're not allowed to do, touch anything, we're only like observing. Uh, so they don't really, they can't really help you clinically. Yeah, clinically, and that becomes a bit of a problem because we really like people who can really come in and really help us. Sure. Because we can always use an extra pair of hands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, do your trainees or do yourselves have the opportunity to go to the other countries and uh, train or watch or, or work together with the people? Since I know obviously lots of people come to Uganda, do you get to leave Uganda and go in and check the other places out and have a transfer of ideas that way? Very rarely. It happens very, very rarely. Um, like for instance, like in, like in America, many places can only offer you an observership. So you can go there, but you're not allowed, uh, I think it's illegal for you to, to, to work or to, con- to participate in the surgery or in the clinical care. So you're like, let's just like an observer. And yes, it has to say, you can learn something, but it's not the same as if you really scrub in or assist the surgeon or the doctor who is there. So in that way, it's a bit uh, more of uh, one-way traffic. Yeah. more of you, people coming from outside to visit us and us going there. But the few times that we have sent people, um, they, they really learned a lot. They really learned a lot. And there are some um, programs, I think, well, we've had one pediatric surgeon who managed to go, I think, to Canada. Yeah. She went to Canada, yeah. and she's, she's fantastic. When she came back, she's really done a lot of uh, impressive work. But um, like for our residents, it's very rare. Sure. Very rare. Um, when 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 your trainees get to leave Malago Hospital and they go to Canada or they go to Europe or the United States, 
Um, some of them probably want to um, one day stay in those countries um, and not come back to Uganda. You know, has that happened and, and is that a significant brain drain, we call it, meaning draining the talent from, from locally because these people have been exposed to um, the outside institutions and they say, well, we don't want to come back to Uganda. We want to just stay in America or we want to stay in Canada. Um, some years back it did happen, but these days it's becoming more difficult for them to remain in in such countries because of the like the visa regulations and the employment regulations. For instance, if you're going to the states, even if you have your postgraduate degree in Uganda, you have to start almost almost at the level of an intern back there. So not many people are willing to kind of like go back, and the laws are really difficult for you to work in those countries so most of the people whom we are getting who are going out of Uganda uh, in the in the medical profession many of them are in public health yeah in public health and for surgery for surgery obscene or any surgical discipline is very 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 difficult easier I think if you're in internal medicine or pediatrics but still you'd have to go back and even if you are a consultant in Uganda, you'd have to go back, back to the level of uh, an intern or a first-year resident. Yeah, yeah. so the whole retraining process. Um, if it's okay with you, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your trauma patients. What is the number, what is some of the highest uh, mortality causing uh, traumas that you're seeing? So what are the number, maybe one or two reasons that your patients are dying? The head injuries. We have a lot of head injuries. Patients who have come in and um, GCS is eight, less than eight, even if it's more than that. Because they need, these are patients who would need like um, CT scans, diagnosis, followed by immediate interventional procedures, whatever it is, followed by maybe intensive care, being admitted to the intensive care unit. Which, which is not always possible. Our theater services at times are not um, able to handle the numbers. So we have a problem with that. With that. So our, I think our major mortalities in the trauma are head injury cases. Head injury cases and the multiply injured patients. Multiply injured patients. So head, chest, abdomen, or fractures, extremities, they have also carry a higher mortality rate. Yeah. Uh, and what's what's the most common mechanism of injury? Why do they get these traumatic brain injuries? Uh, road traffic crashes. Road traffic crashes by far are the most. And we have um, we have these uh, motorcycle taxis, which they call the border borders. So many people ride them without helmets. So when they do get an accident or when they're in a crash, they get a lot of uh, we see a lot of head injuries and spine injuries. Um, do you know why people, why these border borders, these motorcycle taxis, if you will, became so popular? They become popular because um, they're cheap, one, and you can hail them from wherever. Just the sidewalk, you just put your hand out, and two of them will stop right, right, right there where you are. And uh, another thing is that they are faster because most times they don't follow the traffic regulations, so they get you to where you want to go faster. That's why they are so popular, but that's also why they have such a high um, incident or accident or crash rate. Yeah. So uh, we know statistically that a lot of the young young people, young, healthy, otherwise will be productive people of Uganda are dying because of these 
Puerto Puerto crashes, uh, what what efforts is the Ministry of Health or the country or the hospital doing uh, in in terms of injury prevention? Uh, well, for one, the Buddha Buddha's now it's a law; they must wear helmets. Um, it's still a, a bit difficult to enforce, but now we're seeing more and more coming in uh, when they have had helmets, when they've been wearing helmets. So, hopefully, as it continues, we should see fewer injuries, head injuries, due to border border accidents. Or incidents. Um, what was I going to say? Well, what 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 percentage of patients uh, of your trauma patients eventually require surgery? Do you think about? Top of my head, I really major surgery, minor surgery. What what would you? Well, I guess a, any any surgery procedure. Well, a lot of them will end up with having to, having to get like um, debridement of wounds or suturing of the wounds. So those would be many of them. And also need to go to the operating room. I think there may be maybe about, um, if you consider the orthopedic trauma, I think they, they could be quite a, a significant number, maybe more about like 70% of the trauma patients. And at, at Malago Hospital, that cost of surgery is paid for, is that by the patient or the, by the state or by the country? It's paid for by the state. Uh, yeah. And so, is there some budget where they tell you, well, if you go over this amount this year, we can't offer any more surgery, or how, how, how are these things paid for? Well, I don't want to sound so political. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but um, the hospital is, is, in, and is all the services are supposed to be uh, fully sub- fully paid for, uh, subsidized by the government. Um, there are only a few areas, for instance, where the patient is, is asked to pay some money, for instance, for the um, some of the investigative procedures. Uh, that's if they are, if they're not a private patient, the general patient. But even that, it's it's really heavily subsidized. Yeah. But actually, in, normally everything should be free, unless you're a private patient. And where there, if you opt to be a private patient, then everything is um, costed. So, um, so for the our audience members who are not familiar with the system in Uganda, there's also a private healthcare system. Right, that's the non-teaching, no university affiliation. Because your hospital is a university hospital, these private hospitals uh, don't have any teaching affiliations. How does it work? How, how do these two systems work? Uh, before, some let's say 15, 10, 20 years ago, there were actually no other universities or medical schools. Um, actually, more than twenty-five years ago. But now we do have some private. Uh, hospitals or facilities which are which have a medical school at, at, at affiliated to, affiliated to them or attached to them uh, one of them is uh, has started recently but they only offer postgraduate courses in medicine they haven't started the undergraduate courses so that's uh, at least we, and then another one which is in the western part of the country is also private totally private they have a hospital attached to them but that's only for undergraduates. Undergraduates, yeah. So we, we were getting into the private for profit, and then we also have the private not for profit. Ah, okay. Yeah. 
Now, how do patients choose which hospital they go to? Um, Private versus Malago. I think it really depends on their pocket, what they can afford. Okay. Yeah. So there are some who who are able to uh, afford the private services, so they will go. Uh, the private not-for-profit are always uh, subsidized, so they are more affordable than the private for-profit. So the private for-profit are picking up now with more people can afford and with health insurance policies coming up, different health insurance policies, programs, there are more patients who actually have uh, their health care paid for by insurance. So those ones can actually access the private for-profit facilities. So they are still they are coming up, but the majority by far the government hospitals. Okay. Um, for for people who are interested in, in coming and working with you, what kind of programs and what, what kind of work do you want? If you can have anything you wanted, <laughs> and and you know that these people want to come out, lots of universities want to come out and work with you. What would you want them to? Uh, what kind of programs would you want them to build? What do they? What do you want them to bring with them? How can they be of most help to you? I think it would really be in terms of training still, yeah. training, 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 so that our, our young doctors or the doctors who are coming up really benefit from um, the skills that they can pass on, the techniques. And not only that, but even the whole, um, how can I put it, the whole, it's like the ethics of how, how, how medicines actually should be practiced if you have um, the, like, the, the right mindset. I don't know how I can put it, but if you look at the your working, how do I call it? Not habits. What is it? Can I call it? The way you people in the Western world, uh, your work ethics. Work ethics. Yeah. Yes, work ethics. It's so different. Let's say from ours. At times, there you can notice the differences. So that is one thing which I really, really try to stress. People who come to visit our unit. To sort of like our people, our residents, our nurses, our doctors, our medical students, to pick up some of these work ethics. When they see um, how the visitors are carrying out the work they are doing. But I think it would be even better if they, got, if our people got a chance to see you in your home environment yeah. and to see how you really approach the work. It would also be something which would be very interesting, and I think it would be very beneficial for our students. And not only the students, but even the staff. Sure. Yeah. And, and um, for universities or NGOs that want to get involved, what should they do? What should they bring? Should they just send um, supplies like sutures and, and uh, 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 or OR supplies? Or what should they send? Send people? Send... I don't, you know, what, what would you tell our audience people should send and what, what things do you need? That's a tricky question because at times, um, you know, it, it really varies from time to time and from place to place. Uh, but even if initially if you somebody just comes in and, and we can work with them to help the patients, 
um, it's not always a matter of bringing in supplies, but really even just an extra hand teaching us, we learning us learning from you, you learning from us. At times, that's just all that is all that is needed. The others can always come later. Yeah, but that is to me that's the most important part. Um, you've worked at this institution for a long time, and I know that probably at times, just like where I work, it can be incredibly frustrating at times. But you obviously have um, stuck with it, and you've um, been committed to the patients of Malago Hospital. I want to hear some of your triumphs, some of the things that, that went well, some of the things that keep you wanting to take care of patients. Because, you know, it, I think oftentimes it's easy to just keep talking about what we don't have and what um, resources we wish we had. But you clearly have done a lot with the limited resources that you have. Somebody, when you're walking on the street and somebody stops you and says, and like, I, sorry, I can't remember who you are, and they said, but oh, I was your patient. And I came in with this and this and this and this and this, and you did this for me. And you see, the patient is now back to productive life. That to me is really uh, something which is so, so gratifying. It sort of like makes it worth all the while for all the struggles you go through and all the challenges. It's really rewarding. And even just knowing that you've maybe saved somebody's life or you've made um, their lives maybe a bit easier. It's something which is so, so gratifying. And even teaching the students who pass through your hands, when you see them progressing in their career, not all of them, of course, will be surgeons, but those who do become surgeons. Right, right. <laughs> it's really, really satisfying. Yeah. It's, it's really good. And I, and I can attest to the fact that, you know, just walking in the streets that uh, Dr. Jackie will be slapped and everybody will say hello um, <laughs> because, um, you know, she's made a huge difference in a place where oftentimes you probably feel like, um, there are more patients than you can handle, but you don't have a choice, so you keep pushing through, and you just take care of them, right? Yeah. 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 Not always easy, but we try. Yeah. It's not always easy. There are days when you feel like, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't want to go to that hospital today. <laughs> but somehow you just get the energy to keep on going, keep yes. on going. Yeah. I think, I think, Dr. Jackie, that, that is a, um, that's a common thread we share as surgeons and as doctors. Never mind that we're in Uganda or in New Haven, Connecticut, or anywhere in, the, in this world, um, that that is a common thread that we share. We are so grateful that you gave us the opportunity to come out, and I really hope that we have the opportunity to collaborate further. Uh, I think global health is very popular nowadays, and you said that you noticed that you're seeing more students and, and whatnot. And I can attest to you that in the United States, Global health is a very popular thing. Everybody's talking about it right now. We must not forget is that we need to reach out to the people that we're planning on visiting and collaborating with and saying, Dr. Jackie, what do you need from us? And what would you like from us? As opposed to having some sort of a set program in our mind and saying, oh, we know they're going to need those things. Do you agree with that? I, really, I totally agree with you. It, it has to be what we need, what we require, not just what... Because um, at times, like, we've seen it's meant in a good way, but it may not be what we need at that time. Um, so it's always good for the collaborations, to, for the collaborators to really get to know what the other's needs are. And it shouldn't always be one way. It doesn't be two ways. I, I really think there are some things which maybe you can also learn from us. Yes. So it should also be what can we offer you? Yes. What can you learn? What can you gain from us? Or what would you think would be beneficial to you yeah. in this collaboration? Yeah. But most times, we think, look at it as us 
only benefiting from yeah. you. But it also should also be the other way around. What can we offer you? Yeah, and we. Um, I've only been here a short week, and I know, even working with your trainees, they're so resourceful and so creative. And I'm learning. They they ask me very difficult questions because sometimes. I only know how to do it when I have all of these instruments and all of these um, technology, and they're so creative about the ways that they can get around that problem that I absolutely have learned learned a lot from them, and I, it's it's been a fantastic experience. We want to thank you again for joining us on this podcast, and、uh, we look forward to talking to you soon again. Thank you too. Thank you. I've also enjoyed your visit, and definitely we should continue working together. And look forward looking forward to your next visit. And audience members, thank you very much for joining us on this very special podcast from Uganda, Kampala, Uganda, and Malago Hospital with Dr. Jackie.、Um, tune in for our next podcast. Thanks, thanks again for joining us. Bye bye. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, and career development, remember. That all you need to do is look to the east.